Well, like we said before, we're so excited to have our seniors here tonight. Shout out to HSM. It is awesome to be with you back in the high school room. Um, hopefully you can kind of get a little bit of flavor of YA, but we're just stoked to be with you. And if this is your first time, it's awesome to have you. Um, if we've met before, um, you know that I am a little bit of a Star Wars fan, so I'm just going to say this just from the top, May the 4th be with you all, okay? Um, but that is going to be my only reference tonight, so I'm just going to give a forewarning right here. Um, but if we haven't met before, my name is Sarah, and I get to be one of the pastors here at Calvary Young Adults. And I have the privilege of carrying on in our first Peter series that we've been in for quite a few weeks now. And previously on First Peter, we had Brian Howard up here preaching out of First Peter chapter 3. And he talked about the hope that we have in suffering, specifically what it means to live a life that invites the blessing of God. And basically the chapter wraps up and it, it kind of is summarized in 3.18. I'm just going to jog our memories and read it for us. Peter tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, that Christ suffered to bring you to God, us to God, me to God. He was put to death in the body to be made alive again in the spirit. You see, we're coming from this place in the word where we're told that the Lord suffered for our sins so that we don't have to, so that we may know God in an up close and personal way, starting now on this side of eternity all the way to the next. That's setting our eyes on Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, especially when we're suffering for what is good and of his word, actually invites the blessing of God on our lives. That's good news. And tonight, as we look at chapter four and read verses one through 11, I'm going to make the case alongside Peter that living for God and his blessing actually starts with a mindset of agreeing with Jesus the mindset of learning to agree with Jesus. And we're gonna unpack that, but first, if you have your Bible, digital or print, you can open with me to 1 Peter chapter four. We're gonna look again at verses one through 11. So Peter continues this way. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin is done with sin. So again, we're going off this last chapter where we see Christ suffering in his body because of the sin that we've imposed, the sin in this world. And there's this debt that comes with sin, right? The debt that sin, the only way it could be paid off is death. So when Christ takes that cross on our behalf, he's actually suffering for us. Because we know this to be true. If you've been alive on this side of eternity for any amount of time, that if you are living in sin, that's going to cause suffering not only in your life, but the life of others. So there's this two ends of this, right? That it causes death in the world, death to the things that are good and pure and lovely. But also, ultimately, we are called to suffer for our own sin. But what this passage, the good news of this passage brings is that since Christ suffered in his body, we could actually look to him and partner with him and say, you know what? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That when we decide to follow Jesus with our whole lives, we say, I'm going to join him in his suffering so I may know the life that he has in the spirit. And this is what Peter's getting at. But what it's so interesting about this verse is not, he's just not calling to say, okay, now associate yourself with Christ. Recognize the suffering he took in his body. He calls us to what? He says, arm yourselves with the same attitude. What, what is an attitude? 
It's not just a thing like we give our mom occasionally. Like what actually like is an attitude? By definition, an attitude is a subtle way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that's reflected in our behavior. So it's thinking that affects our behavior. So it begs the question, what exactly is this attitude that Christ had that we are called to take on? John 19.30 takes us to some of Jesus' final moments on the cross. And this is what it says. When Jesus was hanging there on the brink of death, it says this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is finished? He says, sin no longer has authority over the lives of my people. That is what is finished. The finished work of the cross is, he said, sin no longer gets to rule or reign over you. The suffering that sin causes, not only that, but now we have a way back to God. The veil is torn. We get to enter into this new relationship, this new covenant with the Lord because of Christ's blood. Because of his suffering, we get to say to sin, you no longer get to own me. That Christ owns me. He absorbed my punishment. This is the attitude that we get to adopt in Christ to say, it's done. The terminology for this phrase, it is finished in the Greek, um, is to telestay. This might sound familiar. You might have seen it, maybe even our gift shop here. Um, but this is the summation of this attitude, this it is finished attitude. And this idea, I just want you to kind of picture this over your life. This attitude that Christ took towards sin to say it is done now is not only a shield, like Peter said, arm yourself with this, but it becomes a directional signpost over the life of the believer. The tr this truth that we are to be done with sin has the power to inform and shape our entire lives because of what Christ has done for us. You see, when we choose to follow Christ, we're saying amen to what he did on that cross. And amen is often like this churchy word, right? Like now we say it casually in conversation, like, oh, I'm, I feel so cute today. Like, amen, girl. You know, like, yes, I agree. Like, mm. but it really like it's come to mean like, I agree. Like, yes, you do. Yes. And in the direct translation actually just means let it be so. Let it be so. I agree. So when Peter tells his fellow Christians, fellow followers of Christ to have the same attitude, what he's actually asking them is, are you ready to live a life that agrees with the reality of Jesus? A life that showcases that Jesus died to end the reign of sin in your life. And I think this can be really easy at the beginning of your walk with Jesus, especially if you're like tasting and seeing the freedom in Christ for the first time to be like, yes, of course, like, amen, I'm into that. Like, I'm ready for Jesus to be my everything. Like, I'm never going to sin again. This is going to be awesome. But something happens along the way, right? And it can get inside our heads as we try to live in agreement with Christ, of following his will and seeking his ways. And it's this, like, what gets in the way? It's our minds, it's our minds. And Paul actually speaks to this in Romans 7, verses 22 through 23. This is what Paul says. I love how honest he is. He says, for my inner being, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Like this is Paul who's like completely made a 180 in his life, where he's like, I am no longer persecuting Christians. I am all in for Jesus. I am like sacrificing my life. I'm constantly being in prison for the gospel. He's like, in my inner self, I delight in God's law, this new covenant Christ has made with us. 
But what, it, what happens? But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of what my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul even recognizes, he's like, he's the one who says, I want to do the things that honor and glorify God, but for some reason I keep getting caught up because guess what? There's a war being waged in my mind. And he's a man following Jesus where he is covered by the blood of Jesus. But here's the reality. Even though we walk with the Lord, even though at the end of our day, we get to stand before God and say, Lord, I agree I've been a sinner, but look what Christ did for me. I agree with Christ. We still have an alive and active enemy on this side of eternity. And guess what the scriptures call him? He's called the father of lies. And where does a lie start? It starts in our minds. It starts in our thoughts, and then it gets to our attitude, and then it starts to leak out in our behavior. And it sneaks in between these precious moments we have with the Lord. The moments in worship where we're like, yes, Lord, I believe everything I'm saying is true. When you see God move in powerful ways through prayer, when you see friends and family come to Jesus, and the next day suddenly we're just overcome with doubt and fear. Why? Because we're in this active warfare for the capital of our hearts and our minds. And then suddenly, how we feel about God, that fervor we once had, begins to dim with doubts and temptation and guilt. And then we start to hear that echo that's so similar to the serpent in the garden, right? In the back of our minds, the, did God really say? Or how about this? Was what Jesus did on the cross really enough? Our emotions, though they are good and valuable indicators, will not set us on the right path. Our thoughts will, our thinking will, because your thoughts shape your attitude and your attitude is going to shape your life. That is why Peter calls us to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And that is why, so this chapter title in the NIV is Living for God, which is awesome. I think that summarizes it pretty well. But in the message, this chapter is actually called Learn to Think Like Him. Learn to think like Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Because I can tell you, I, hands down, well, now that we have the seniors and I don't know if they'll probably outshine me, but I think I'm the most vocal amener here. Um, I can hear myself on the playback of all of our <laughs> live streams, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But I'm just going to be transparent and confess that I will amen to things that are true, but internally, I'm not necessarily agreeing with them. I've come to a place in my mind in my day just because of the way that lies and narratives can slip in my own mind. I, I will declare things with my mouth, but they're not connecting with my heart because underneath the surface, I just start to believe these little lies that start to separate me from the reality of God and start to disagree with the character of God, the reality of God, and they start to shape my thoughts and my actions. But here's the truth. When we recognize the reality of God, is greater than the reality of brokenness, we could start to align again with the truth of God, right? And Peter testifies this to be true believers. When we join in the attitude towards sin that Christ has, something happens, it changes. Verse two tells us, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. Guys, the will of God for our lives is so good. Like, it's so good. It's full of joy and healing and reconciliation and peace. Like, he desires good for our lives. But he's given us a choice of whose will we're going to follow, right? I can firmly say, when you compare your will 
to the Lord's will and your will is not aligning with his, you're always going to miss the mark of what you actually want. I've seen this be true in my life. And even this past weekend, um, if you're in main service, which I highly recommend you check it out, um, Pastor Sean spoke about adultery. And the resounding theme was whatever you want to make God besides the Lord will at the very least overpromise and underdeliver. But at the most, and it usually does, it's going to rob, kill, and destroy your peace and your joy and your purpose. So this takes experience and trust to understand, but it's true. It's true. And the Lord's will for us is actually to live into freedom. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter five, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But he says this, do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled by keeping one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, which is what happens when we give over to our own will, it ends up usually resulting in evil desires, watch out or you're going to be destroyed by each other. That's what sin does. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Agree in the word of God, both in your word and your deed. But how do we do this? Like on a practical level, how do we actually come into agreement with the same attitude of Christ? Um, This is where I'm going to show you how. I'm going to show you my work. This is something we've been doing throughout this series to kind of give you a little bit of insight into how we come to conclusions when we preach. We don't just get up here and try to blow air at you guys. We really kind of take things back to the drawing board. This is a little bit hard to see, so I am going to just walk you through it. Um, But a couple years ago, I was in a really, really dark place. I had been in a relationship that I thought was going super well. I was really pumped. You know, you open yourself up to someone and you're like, man, I'm excited about the future that we can have. And about halfway through, I found out that there had been just a ton of infidelity and betrayal and just some really, really wicked things going on. And I won't say that it shattered my reality, but it did shatter my trust in people and my trust in God. And that brought me to this place where I felt like I was just like walking with a limp spiritually. I was like, man, God, how can you let this happen? And fear just kind of took a hold of my mind and my heart. And I began to distance myself from agreeing with the things of God. And during that time, I had a friend give me this book. It's called Get Out of Your Head by Jenny Allen. who's a wonderful pastor, theologian, speaker, a woman I deeply admire for her faith in the Lord. And she writes about how we have a choice when it comes to our thoughts and how our thoughts then shape our lives, just like Peter is talking about. I'm just going to give you an example of how quickly an emotion and a thought can actually lead to our behavior and result and effect on our relationships and ultimately the consequence it has with our relationship with God. Here's the example of fear. Um, I assume this is something we've all felt before. But for me in this season, I was just riddled by fear. Fear that the next person I was going to date was going to betray me, that the people around me, my closest friendships, were somehow withholding secrets or lying for me. I just lived in this state of self protection, but it all started with this emotion of fear. And fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think emotions are just healthy indicators of something that is below the surface. But when an emotion can become dangerous is that when it starts to agree with the thought, and this is the thought that I began to agree with. So if you could see, this is on the right-hand side. It went from, okay, I have a fear. And then the thought became, I can't trust God to take care of my tomorrow. 
Like, I can't trust God with my future. I have enough evidence now that something bad's going to happen, and I can't trust God with my future. And then started to affect the way that I behaved. I began to become resistant to God's authority. Why? Because I couldn't trust him. Because something heartbreaking had happened in my life. And then that behavior started to affect my relationships. And suddenly I became controlling of them because I didn't want anything to hurt me, right? Like I wanted to like precisely control the outcome of each so then I would never feel hurt again. Makes sense, right? But what happens when we become controlling? We become anxious. And I just lived in this anxiety. And I remember just crying out to God going, what do I do? Like, how do I practically change this? I was like praying for practical answers. Then I'm reading through this book And suddenly I get to this chapter where I'm told I have a choice of how to think. I'm going, this can't possibly be the solution. But we look into scripture and Peter's saying the same thing. He's like, you have a choice. You can join in the reality and the attitude of Christ. So I said, okay. And here's the deal. I would still wake up fearful. I would go into relational social settings still fearful that something rational or irrational was going to happen. But I started to intercept that feeling with the truth of God. I started to tell myself, I'm going to agree with the truth of God, even if I don't feel like it right now, because it's true whether I feel like it, right? And this is what I started to, when I became afraid, and this is what it's kind of showing with the arrow up on the screen, I would start to surrender to God. I'd say, Lord, I am fearful today. I don't know, like, I'm still not so sure about my future, but I'm going to surrender this fear to you, and I'm going to walk forward. And what happened? My thoughts, instead of going, God cannot be trusted, suddenly my thought was, God is in control of my everyday. Okay, God, you are in control today, even if I feel fearful. And then what? It shapes my behavior. Suddenly, if my thoughts are, God, you are in control of my day, then it moves to, okay, God, I'm going to submit to your authority because you're trustworthy. Whether I feel like you're trustworthy or not, I know I can look even on my past and I know you're trustworthy. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be trustworthy again. And that behavior started to affect my relationships. I started to be more present with people, more open. Suddenly the thought of every single person I'm going to date or become friends with is going to betray me started to lessen, to say, no, God is in control of my life. I'm going to open myself up to risk. I'm going to open myself up to new opportunity with people. And guess what? The consequence was I became less afraid. Because once my reality started to agree with the reality of who Christ is and how he's intercepted the effects of sin on my life, I got to live in more freedom. And like, spoiler of the whole story, like, I did date again, and I'm actually engaged to the guy that gave announcements with me. So, and yes, and he is wonderful. But you can ask him, like even in our relationship, this is still a process where fear will pop up again. And instead of succumbing to the lies and just getting into the spiral, I intercept with that truth. And I'm telling you, Peter says, agree with the same attitude of Christ because it does have the ability to transform your life. You become more like a child of God and less like a child of fear. Because here's the truth with that too. Every evil desire that we end up in or chasing is usually just the perversion of something good, usually coming from an emotion that is responded to with a thought that does not agree with the reality of Jesus. And I want to make this point because when I read this next verse for the first time, I honestly wasn't immediately convicted. 
I was like, okay, I understand taking thoughts captive and agreeing that Jesus said that I am done with sin because he is done with sin. But I'm going to guess that, and maybe this is just me, but I'm going to guess that I'm going to read this list out loud. And some of you are going, what? But hear me out. Peter says, verse three, he says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So these are just people not following God, following other gods, living in debauchery. So this is just like giving in to sensual pleasure, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, which is just kind of like wild partying, and the detestable adultery. And at first, I'm sure you guys are like, okay, maybe I've like lusted a few times, but like orgies and carousing, like what? And here's the deal. He is referring to things that these new Christians at the time would be surrounded by in the Greco-Roman culture. Like these are things where there's festivals to other gods. They're very, very common occurrences. But I think for us in this day and age, it's easy to remove ourselves and be like, I would never do those things. But if we're going back to this idea that things start in emotions and go to thoughts and then go to behaviors, let's just like peel back the layers because I think we might see this a little bit differently when we understand that even neutral emotions that are not met by the truth of God can turn into thoughts and behaviors that can take us so far from God. Okay, let's take debauchery, right? This is like giving in to sensual desire. Um, the emotion, the desire for freedom. That seems like pretty neutral, right? Like I desire for freedom. My desire is for freedom. But when we don't come under the submission of Christ in order to receive the freedom and the new life he offers us, guess what happens? We get, we get into this thought process of, okay, well, I want freedom. I'll get it on my own terms. I'll get it on my own terms. Like whatever I feel brings me freedom, I'll do it myself. Or what about lust? It can come from this emotion for a lot of people, just, I want to be satisfied. I don't want to be, I want to be soothed by something. And if we don't match that and bring it under the authority of Christ to say, I am actually not in control of my own body or that of others, or the way I see money or success, the thought can soon easily be, um, it's my body and my life belongs to me. I could do whatever I want. Or drunkenness. And I know some of these things, especially these two, these can hit closer to home. These are realities of things that we can struggle with, especially in this age. But this can come from the simple thought of, I just want to be comforted. Like, I just want to be comforted. I just want to fit in, or I just want to be comforted in the moment. And if that's not matched by submission to the Spirit or agreeing with the things of God, the thought can soon turn into, I'm in control of myself. I know my limits. Like, I'm, you don't need to tell me what to do. Like, I can handle this. You see how quickly it goes from, okay, this is a neutral emotion, to suddenly this thought that's going to inform our behaviors. Okay, what about orgies? Um, I know you're like, I would never, like, but again, like, what if the emotion was just a desire for connection or thrill? Like, that's a human emotion. Like, we want to connect to other people. We want to thrill. We want to do something a little different. But if we don't intercept that and ask God, like, what, what, what is a healthy outlet for that? It can soon turn into sex and relationships are not that sacred. They're not that sacred. It's just like an experience. Or carousing, right? Like, partying with your friends. The desire for celebration and community. The thought turning to the actions of my friends and I won't affect anyone in the long term. Like, so what? Like, we've, like, made a fest one night. No one's going to remember. Like, we destroyed some property. It's cool. Like, these are things that, I mean, these are conversations I've had with people. But, um, and then it ends in adultery. 
And this is the one on the list that actually dates all the way back to the Ten Commandments. So this, if they, if someone had grown up in the Hebrew faith, this is the one that's really going to stand out. And that's why it says detestable before it. Detestable idolatry. And it can come from the simple emotion of, I just want control and security in my life. I want control and security in my life. And you know what? I've been seeking the Lord, but he's not really delivering in the way that I want him to deliver in. Um, So the thought can turn to, you know, my God or gods are meant to serve me. And that's how we get into this slippery slope of idolatry, carousing, orgy, all these things that you're like, man, I would never. But we could, right? If our thoughts are not kept in alignment and agreement with the things of God, our hearts really are wicked above all things. They could take us places that we never wanted to go, right? See, these emotions aren't necessarily evil. But again, when our thoughts don't agree with God, they're going to come into agreement with something. That's the reality. They're going to either agree with God or they're going to agree with our flesh and the enemy. Because just like this new song that our team wrote, Made to Worship, which is awesome, we love it, Um, stream it, but... No, it's telling the truth that we are actually created to worship. So if we're not worshiping the God of the universe, we're going to worship something. We don't have a choice. Like you really don't have a choice in this matter. So when we have the opportunity to stop the spiral and say, God, I'm actually going to put all my attention and focus on you. Jesus, I recognize what you've done for my life. Help me think differently. Help me live differently. And we interject truth. Something else is going to happen. It's the people in your lives who aren't walking in that way might bring some scrutiny on you. Peter tells us this. It says, they, these people. So the people you've been walking with, maybe before you were walking with Christ, or in this case, he's just talking to the Gentile believers, the pagans that are around these Christians. He says, they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they may heap what? Abuse on you. Now, the kind of translation for abuse here that fits a little bit better is vilify. They might vilify you. If friendship with the world means that we are to make God our enemy, the opposite is true. When we choose to befriend God, we start to be inhospitable to the things of the world. Not necessarily people, but the things, the sin nature of the world. And we can't expect people who are not living for God to treat us with understanding when we make those choices. See, when you walk out of darkness into light, there's going to be a stark contrast. And the lies of the enemy are going to speak loudest to those not living in the truth. So they may hurt you, they may mock you, they may reject you or even question you. Friends and family you once were in agreement with, you once were in alignment with, but now that you're no longer amening the same things that they are agreeing with, these counterfeit things, and you're amening amening to God, there's going to be tension. And it's going to be tempting to actually dish the same attitude they're going to give you. When people start to feel rejected, they're going to reject you, right? So it's easy just to like kind of push it back, especially if you're like newer to walking with Jesus. We're all in a sanctification process. Um, but the good news is that scripture has a reply for how we should act when this happens, for when people vilify you, suddenly push you away or mock you. Matthew 5 verses 43 through 45 says this, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that people may actually look at you and recognize that you are under the authority of someone else, of a good Father in heaven, that even when they do you wrong, you don't push it back on them, you pray for them. See, when we are called to follow Jesus, we're called to be ambassadors, which means that we are urged to actually introduce people to the love of God, 
The love of Christ, a love that is patient and kind and self-controlled. Our role is to be present representatives of God's grace, his mercy, praying, asking the spirit to lead those who do not yet amen or agree with him into the realities of Jesus's love. We do not argue or wrestle people into the kingdom of God. Why is that important? Because we wanna live lives that agree with Jesus explicitly in word and deed so we could bring others to Christ. Peter reminds us this in verse five with urgency. He says, but they, these people that are maybe mocking or vilifying will have to give an account to God who is ready to judge both the living and the dead. Why is it important to love people? Because at the end of our lives, the living and the dead, just another way of saying all people are going to have to stand before their creator and give an account of their lives to either say, Lord, I was with you. And he can look at us and either say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant, or he can look at us and say, I never knew you. So as believers, we have this role to be ambassadors, right? And this doesn't mean perfection. He's not calling us to live in perfection, but it does mean living lives of surrender. Verse six continues, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in the spirit, in regard to the spirit. Peter here is just pointing out that those who are dead, they've already been preached the gospel. And why is that important? Because there are people who have gone before them who have endured the judgment of others, of human standards, and perhaps even been vilified and mocked by others. But they went on. They continued to live a life that was in glory to God. They said, you know what? I may be judged by human standards, but I'm alive in the spirit. And I'm gonna continue the good work that God has given me. This good work that we start from here, the moment we accept Christ into the end of our lives. And again, he's just preaching with this urgency. Out of verse seven, he says, the end of things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober of mind so that you may what? Pray. What does he mean by the end of things is near? See, Christ has come once before to take our sins on that cross, to live a perfect and blameless life so we may follow his instruction. But the good news is he's coming again. He's coming back. That's what we mean when we sing the song, getting ready. Like we as Christians are urging and welcoming the return of Christ to make all things new to come and make all things new. And again, that time where we as his people get to stand before him and make account of our lives and either say the reality of my life agreed, agreed with you, Lord. And what a good day that will be for those who know him, who say, God, my life agreed with you. But what a hard day for those not living in alignment with Christ. Because you see on that day, they will realize this whole time there has been a war for our hearts and minds to distract them from the reality of Jesus. So Peter is calling the people of God here now in this passage to do what? He's calling them to be alert and sober of mind. Again, the battle is for our minds, what we are filling our minds with. And furthermore, what we're agreeing with under the surface. You see, being sober-minded and prayerful agrees with the reality of Jesus. It points to the reality of Jesus and this brings us in alignment with the spirit of God. When we are clear-headed, we can hear God, we can walk with God. But Peter is quite literally saying, don't distract yourself with substances that makes the process more difficult. Whatever numbs you out, whether it's social media, which that's true for me, TV, weed, alcohol, pornography, 
whatever it is that's blurring your ability to connect with God. He said, get sober so you can hear me and go forward and actually pray for the people of God and pray for those who do not yet know God. Because that will help stop the spiral. The things that are numbing you out won't. See, prayer is a vital element, a vital way that believers connect with the Lord. Why? It's transformative. It's an act of agreement. It's one of the ultimate acts of agreements with God saying, we need you, Lord. We need your help. We need your presence. We need your wisdom in our lives. We are called to both love and pray for our enemies as well as our fellow believers. And depending on the season of life you're in, I don't know which is harder, to pray for your enemies or pray for your fellow believers. But Peter gives a specific command to believers toward other believers, and it's this. He's saying, okay, be alert, be sober-minded, but above all else, like if you want to do one good next step, if you want to do the next right thing, here's what it is. Above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Again, above all, another way of putting this is love each other with fervor. Love each other earnestly, genuinely. Like, guys, love each other deeply. Like, in this community of believers, love each other deeply. Why? Because godly love is powerful in the face of sin. I was reading a commentary on this, and it's, they were saying that the meaning of cover in this context isn't just like sweeping things under the rug, like illegitimately to be like, oh, we're covering sin. It's not here. And it doesn't mean atoning for it the way Christ atoned for it because we are not God and we cannot do that. But rather it means to obliterate or make it disappear. Like what he's saying is the more love of God is actually genuine and present in a community, the presence of sin will be less. Like you actually have the ability to like imbalance that ratio. Because when we love something powerful happens, when forgiveness happens, when repentance happens, it defeats it. It zaps the power out of sin. And when we enter the kingdom of God, here's the deal. We become a we. Like the moment you accept Jesus, you become a we. This is your community. These are your people. And we have this responsibility to love one another deeply so that sin does not continue to wage war in a way where it has the victory, right? Now, I'm going to get a little personal here. So like I said, I'm engaged to this man. Um, and this is a precise picture of what our relationship looks like, in case anyone was wondering. Thank you, Troy, for that enthusiastic clap. Um, so <laughs> I've experienced this verse very directly. I think for me initially, when I was like, yeah, love covers a multitude of sin. That sounds great. Like that would make a great bumper sticker or like coffee mug or something. But what does that actually mean? And here's just a small example where this verse became real in my life. So um, as happens in romantic relationships, we got into a little tiff. And when I said tiff, I mean, we just had like a series of fights for like several weeks. And it was always on Sabbath. And I will say I probably instigated most of them. Um, because like I said earlier, like I deal with that spiral of fear in my life. And when I am not agreeing with the truth of God, I am the first person to become like an anxious mess. And what happened on this day in particular, I actually can't even specifically remember what we were fighting about, but I was on the phone with him and I was on the way to a wedding, which is the perfect time to fight with someone is when you have limited space and availability. So I'm on speakerphone and I get there and I realize I'm one of the last people at this wedding, like to the point where like I can start to see the groomsmen lining up. So I get there and the guy's like, may I take your car in ballet? So I was like, all right, Tim, bye, like completely unresolved. 
So I'm sitting there in this wedding and I am like fuming inwardly because for whatever reason, I'm just sitting there and I'm just like racking up all the record of all the things that Tim has done to annoy me and to make me mad when in reality, that's like a completely unfair thing to do, right? But I was doing it and <laughs> I'm watching two of my friends get married and it's like, you know, like the pinnacle of like the picture of Christ and his bride and, you know, we're supposed to be focusing on how like good it is to know Jesus and the pastor gets up and he goes to the verse that happens at almost every wedding you've ever been to, which is 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the love is patient, love is kind, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to tell Tim about this sermon. He's totally going to repent to me and it's going to be great. And of course, halfway through this message, the pastor goes and he's like, and that's what makes love so miraculous. He's like, you are going to grow in this love of Christ and it's going to hold you fast through your marriage that over time, your love is actually going to cover one another from the effects of sin. Because when you forgive each other and you repent to one another, there's the staying power of love in your life that's going to keep you and bless you over the years. And suddenly I was like, oh no, I'm convicted. I think I, I might have texted him like, can we talk after the wedding? I love you. Um, and what happened was like, this is what happened. I was still feeling some of that fear and that anxiety where I wanted to be right. I wanted, I for some, I just wanted to be right in that situation. I wanted some sort of an apology for whatever reason. I just needed to be vindicated in that moment. But what I realized was I was being ruled by fear instead of love. So I had him come over afterwards and I asked him permission to share this. But I opened my Bible to that verse and was like, I know you've heard this verse a million times. But I sat there and I began to repent. I repented for not being patient for not being kind, for when I was envious, when I was boastful, when I was proud, when I did dishonor him, when I was self-seeking, and I went through the entire verse, and it was a little bit awkward, but as I started to repent, this like weight began to lift off my chest. Suddenly, like I didn't need to be vindicated. Like I did not need him to apologize for whatever imaginary thing I wanted him to apologize for. And I, I, can't, I wish I can like, describe to you the breakthrough that happened in our relationship after that. But for me, it was like this like cornerstone moment for us that I can only describe as like supernatural and holy because I began to agree with the love of God over our relationship. I loved him first as a brother in Christ and I repented and it started to change my heart. It started to change the way that we even entered disagreements it started to reshape and redirect the path of my thoughts towards Tim, my, my thoughts towards God, my thoughts towards myself. And I can say there's still been moments where I've been tempted to go back into that place of pride, to go back into that place of just wanting to fight for the sake of being heard or fight. But it completely shifted my attitude. It completely shifted my mind. And it showed me like love actually can cover a multitude of sins. And it is worth leading out in humility. It is worth leading out in forgiveness and repentance. And then Peter goes on after this um, to say something else that seems really simple, but actually has a lot of radical power in this. He goes from, okay, love each other deeply to this. Verse nine, offer hospitality to another without grumbling. Without grumbling. Okay, so here's the deal. In the early church, like the early church would not have survived without people's like physical hospitality. If people weren't opening their homes, there would be no house churches. There would be no places for missionaries to stay. Like the spread of the gospel was dependent on people being generous with their homes. 
Now, today, in this context, it's a little bit different. I'm not saying here, and I don't think the direct application was like, okay, now just like go home and like host your friends for a sleepover who love Jesus, even though that sounds great. Um, like be hospitable towards the believer, like open your homes. There is a time and space for that. But I'm gonna argue and encourage you in something that we've talked about as a vision team, as a, as a YA staff team recently, and it's this. It's hospitality of self. This is like a social bandwidth hospitality when it comes to engaging both believers and unbelievers. And this is what hospitality of self can look like. It's your attention when someone new or newer comes through our, our doors, this church that we get to call home. It's your compassion when you notice a brother or sister hurting who may be in need of prayer. It's your humility when you don't want to interact with another believer because they're like different than you or in another word, they like annoy you. Like that's hospitality of self. It's directing your focus on another person. And remember, Peter knows you're going to grumble about this. He's like, be hospitable without grumbling because I know you're probably going to be upset initially. But to give yourself to others outside of the home, even here at church, is crucial, both for the family of God and those who are still deciding whether church and God's people are their home. We're encouraged towards this life of hospitality because ultimately it agrees with God. It points to the reality of God that all are welcome within his family. And then verse 10, it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Because here's the truth, both hospitality and using your gifts they point to the reality of God. They agree with the reality of God. And I wish I can give like a full sermon on gifts. And I know this is like, we're running out of time here. But I will say this, when we live out our giftings, we get to point to the grace of God. We're saying that I'm in, in agreement, that I am in the family of God, and I've been given something that blesses others. That when Christ did not withhold even his own life, I'm not gonna withhold the giftings that the Lord has given me. And there's things that we're all called to do, like be hospitable, be merciful, be loving, be warm, be embracing. But there are special gifts that are deposited in us by the Holy Spirit that we are asked to use in order to build the kingdom of God. And I'm just going to show my work real quick. So I'd encourage you, if you're like, I want to know this list, get out your phones. You could take a picture. Um, these are various places through scripture that give very specific references to gifts. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I am actually in a journey of learning what my gifts are. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is invite you to pray. Ask the Lord, Lord, what are my spiritual gifts? He knows. He gave them to you. He wants to give them to you. And the second thing is this. Ask the believers in your life who know Jesus to start encouraging and pointing out the gifts that they see in you. Because gifts are not made to be operated in isolation. They're actually made to be operated in a group of people. And I believe they're developed over time. Some are given for certain moments. But over time, they're meant to be developed in you. And Peter actually ends in his final verse talking about two gifts in particular. He says this, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I, he's saying, I agree to him be the power and glory. But what is he calling? He's saying anyone who speaks, and he's talking in this particular sense in a worship setting. So like this verse brings a lot of weight to my own life, to anyone's life who takes the stage, who speaks the word of God, 
He said, don't speak with your own words. Speak with the words that the Lord has anointed you with. Speak from scripture. Speak from the places that are good and true and honor and represent the Lord. And then he also says this, if you're going to serve, do it with the strength that God provides. Don't do it on your own strength. Because here's what I see happening, and I see this in my own life. Anytime I go up to preach, I suddenly become more aware of my shortcomings. Like, it's not that I don't think I can speak publicly or anything like that. I mean, you might enjoy my speaking, you might not. That's, you know, we could talk about that later. But truly, like, when God has gifted you with something, it's his. It's his to give you. It's his strength. But we start to reflect on ourselves and we say, God, but I'm just not enough. What if my testimonies aren't powerful enough? What if my study of the word isn't good enough? Or many of you who serve in various ministries or might be afraid to serve in different ministries, I hear time and time again, I just don't think I'm knowledgeable enough to lead a small group. I just don't think that I'm outgoing enough to work with kids. I just don't think I'm blank enough to be operating and serving in the kingdom of God. But here is the truth. Recognizing our limits actually agrees with the reality of Jesus. Jesus came because we have limits. Jesus came because we are not enough in ourselves and our talents and our weaknesses he's made strong. And I'll end with this. So Ben, you can come and make your way back up. But when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this certain piece of art that hangs above my desk as a reminder. And it's this, you can put it up on the screen. Um, so this is a sketch of a heart done in the Japanese style of Kintsugi. And Kintsugi is this, basically any time a precious piece of pottery breaks in a household, they have the option and tradition to take it to someone who's gonna not discard it, but instead restore it by actually filling the cracks in with gold. And what happens here is this piece actually increases in value the more times it's been cracked and broken and then restored again. And I'll show you just a picture of what an actual bowl looks like in this manner. And what I love about this and what I think is true as a life as a follower of Christ is that just like Kintsugi, when we agree with the things of God, we are not merely coming before Jesus to be fixed like a broken object, but we are coming before Christ to be transformed into something beautiful. A life of agreement with the things of God brings glory to God and awareness of his presence. The power of Christ is not to come and make us perfect on this side of eternity, but to make our lives purposeful, showing people his splendor and our weakness and our brokenness. Because then when we amen to the things of God with our minds and our actions, this is what the world and the church sees they see that gold shining through the cracks of our brokenness. And they wonder who on earth could be powerful enough, good enough, kind enough to put someone back together to be more purposeful. You see, beauty and transformation is only possible with Jesus. And Peter is inviting us to agree with that reality. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Lord God, I just thank you so much um, that you make all things beautiful, God that you restore us from places of brokenness, that you invite us to have the same mind and attitude as you, Jesus, and that could actually shape our entire lives. Lord, I just pray that you teach us to intercept our thoughts so they agree with you, Jesus, that our lives would amen you, God, and that others may be drawn into your presence from that place. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. And we pray this in your name. Amen.